0: Support for all the books comes from Talenti. When Talenti makes gelato and sorbetto, they tend to get a little overzealous. Did they need to use so many raspberries in their Roman raspberry sorbetto that the machine broke? Did they need to try 25 different chai teas to find the perfect spice blend for their vanilla chai gelato? Did they have to invent giant mint steepers to make their Mediterranean mint super minty? Does their obsessiveness make Talenti, gelato, and sorbetto the greatest? You be the judge. But yes, it does make them the greatest, they're also the judge. To Lenti, the delicious is in the details.
1: You're listening to All the Books, a weekly show of recommendations and enthusiasm regarding the week's new book releases. This is episode 121. And today we are talking about books being released on August 22nd, 2017, and more. I'm Liberty Hardy, here with my fellow podcast, Rebecca Shinsky, and we're coming to you from BookRiot.com.
0: Hello. We're coming to you from the day of the solar eclipse.
1: Yes. It's going to get really dark in your house, and you won't be able to read your notes. I know.
0: I kind of hope that's what happens. We, um, you know, we don't like to start the show talking about weather all the time, but this is. <laughs> A big thing, and it's it is one twenty one p.m. in Richmond here. Apparently, the eclipsing just began at one eighteen. It's going to peak in about an hour and a half, so I should be seeing it get darker and darker outside my office window as we go, which I think is pretty cool. And then I'll be able to run outside and see the end. Yeah, I um I don't know what's happening. Here. You don't, you were yeah you were telling me before the show. You just don't care, and that's okay. You don't have to. I
1: know. I feel bad though. I feel like I should. Like, it's a historic thing, and I should care, but I'm like, I that's mean, cutting in on my reading time. I was going to
0: say, when it gets dark outside, you can't see to read in your little reading tent anymore. Yeah, so it's, you know. It's Inconvenient just, I natural don't phenomena.
1: Yeah.
0: How dare you occur rarely <laughs> ever. For this one hour in, like, yeah. 120 years, you won't be able to read Liberty. Get over it. Wow.
1: Before I start, do you have anything to say about any of your books today?
0: Uh, Let's see, the second book I'm going to talk about, The Futilitarians, has a content warning for suicide, so heads up when we get there. Okay.
1: Now I'm going to tell you about my first book because I'm so excited, I'm so excited, I'm so excited. Um, So don't tell the other books. This is probably (laughs) my favorite book of 2017. I love this book so, so much. It's called The Heart's Invisible Furies, and it's by John Boyne. And I lost my mind over it. It's so good. I've never actually read a John Boyne book before. He wrote uh, The Boy in the Striped Pajamas, most famously, probably. Oh, I probably. did
0: not make that connection. Yeah,
1: and he has several others, and I'm embarrassed to say... Well, not that embarrassed. You know, like, it happens. Um, I've never read him before, but uh, one of our friends, Michael Kindness, who has the Books on the Nightstand podcast, he he told me, he's like, you need to read this book, and he was right. I love it so much. It follows the life of a man named Cyril Avery from post-World War II Ireland uh, through Amsterdam and New York City right up until 2015. It's a big, fat, hilarious, heartbreaking, kind of a little bit dirty occasionally, like just amazing novel. It's so, so good. It opens with Cyril's mother. She lives in a small Irish town. She is unwed and discovers that she's pregnant and the... Her family takes her to church. They shame her in front of the entire town. And then the priest literally, like, boots her out of, out of town. Is like, get out of here. You know, we're like, hello, hypocrisy. Because, you know, all kinds of horrible things happen with the church later on. Um, but, so, the, she's like, well, I don't want to be here anyway, so goodbye. So, um, she goes to Dublin. Um, she gives Cyril up for adoption. And he is taken in by a very wealthy, sort of, like, standoffish couple Um, he's a banker and she's a writer. They don't really know what to do with children. So they kind of treat him like a little adult. And they're also always telling him that he's not a real Avery. Um, so that's how he like introduces himself to people. He's like, I'm Cyril Avery, not a real Avery. Um, and so, but he, he gets well taken care of, you know, like I said, they're very well off. Um, he's enrolled in school. He, when he's seven, he meets a boy named Julian and he turns out to be Cyril's best friend. Um, but not only is he his best friend, but as the years go on, Cyril realizes that he also has feelings for Julian. He thinks he is in love with him. Um, and at this time in Ireland, it's, it's a crime, like literally a crime to be gay. Um, people are imprisoned for it. They're, you know, um, exiled, they're excommunicated. Um, and so he has this, like what what he feels like is a horrible, horrible feeling, And he doesn't know what to do, but he can't tell anybody because, you know, he'll get in trouble. Um, He just tries to, like, keep it to himself. And he goes through a lot of his life. Like, when he gets older, he has, like, secret, you know, encounters with men. But, um, you know, it's all, like, very scary for him because he could get caught and you know like his like when he's in, in a boarding house like his landlord could tell on him and like all the stuff so it's very stressful being Cyril and it's very sad because it's terrible to think that people actually really had to live like this um, but John Boy puts so much humor in the book that it like helps with the the sadness um and it and it's just like it goes there's several um, famous events that take place and he you know he mentions those like as part of the story. And like I said, he just goes. He eventually moves to Amsterdam, and then from there, he ends up in New York City. Um, It's it's like I was trying to figure out a way to describe it. It's like if John Irving wrote Angela's Ashes, but the main character was gay. It's just it's so full of heart and just emotion. Um, And like I said, you know, there are some very sad things. There are some there are um, homophobic crimes, which are which are just devastating. Um, but again, so, so funny. Cyril Avery is probably my new favorite character. Um, I would put him right up there with Owen Meany and Anne Shirley as, like, just wonderful characters I will always remember. Um, if you like John Irving, this is like the John Irving novel that I've been wanting ever since Owen Meany came out. Like, and just, it's not happening. Um, if you like Robertson Davies, like I said, if you like Frank McCourt, um, this is just, just, oh, I can't even say any more adjectives. It's just the best. And I have to say, it was my book of the month pick, Um, so it was available to members at the beginning of August, and I have already received more emails and DMs on Instagram and Twitter um, from people saying that this is one of the best books that they've read. Um, I got this lovely message from a man who said it was the best book he's ever read. Um, Like, more than any other title I've ever recommended, and it just makes my heart just fuzzy and warm because it's so, so good. I know I'm not even doing it justice, but... It's just so wonderful. Again, it's called "The Heart's Invisible Furies," and it's by John Boyne. I
0: have got to get right on that.
1: It's 600 pages long, but I, I'm telling you, it's like, it's like reading like a John Irving. Like it just goes by so fast, and it's so entertaining that you don't even realize. Like, don't be alarmed by the size. It's,
0: it's... <laughs> maybe I'll take it with me on vacation in a couple weeks. I'll have some Oh long yes, it's so good. Oh, since I've mentioned it. I know we have some adventurous folks in the All the Books community. I'm going to be spending a week uh, in Grand Teton's National Park. So if you have any tips about things to do in the park or around the park or in Jackson, feel free to let me know on Twitter or shoot me an email. I would love to hear about those. But now, my first pick of the week so good. It is so good that I had to steal it away from Liberty, who was originally going to talk about it this week. I'm sorry. It's all right. It's Stay With Me, a novel by Ayobami Adebayo, and this is a debut novel. It's set in Nigeria. It was shortlisted for the Bailey's Prize. It is just Bonkers good, um, one, a description that I come back to a lot, and I think I even used it on the the last week's show when I was wrong about a book being someone's debut. Is sometimes you read a debut that's so good, it's like, how could this be someone's first book? And I definitely felt that way about Stay with Me. It's about Yajide and Akin, who have been married since they met and fell in love at university, but four years into their marriage. They have not had any children. They agreed early on in their dating life that even though polygamy is part of their culture, neither of them was up for that. They were going to be married and only to each other. But after four years of no babies... They're very stressed out, and more so, their families are very stressed out. Aiken is the first son uh, on his side of the family. There's a lot of pressure on him to produce a child, especially to produce a a son, an heir, to carry on the family name and the family tradition. And there's a ton of pressure on Yajide to do the thing that a woman is supposed to do and give this man a baby. And so now she finds out... like because her uh, one of her polygamous mothers, so not like her biological mother, but one of her father's wives shows up at her house along with one of Akin's relatives one day, and they have this young woman in tow. And it turns out that she's the only one, Yejide is the only one, who didn't know that Akin was taking a second wife. Um, that... This was his solution to finally having a child, and Yujide is furious, as she should be, um, and knows that the only way she can try to save the marriage, to save herself, she doesn't want to have to share her husband, this is not the deal she signed up for, is for her to get pregnant herself but they've been to a ton of doctors. No one has told her anything that is physically wrong with her. Her husband says that when he had all of the tests run, they said there was nothing physically wrong with him. So she is going to explore some alternative ways to try to get pregnant. And some of those are traditional, some of them are mystical, um, and some of them are very secretive. Um, I don't want to say anything more about What happens? Like all of this is sort of the activating setup in the first 50 or so pages of the book. But to tell you anything else about whether she's successful getting pregnant or not, and about what happens would be to spoil all of the really delicious tension of the book. So I'm gonna leave it there. It's, oh, man. It's so good. I read the entire thing in one sitting. It's a long, it's not a, it's not 600 pages, but it's like 260, 270, which is a lot for me to read in one day, and I just could not turn away from it. The language is beautiful. The like subtle nuances of getting into multiple characters' heads, especially in this kind of story, is is handled really really well. And it's, you know, a big book with really big difficult issues there's not so much about the infertility stuff but it really goes to family to sort of familial familial pressure and duty what family means family secrets deception and sort of how far we're willing to go to try to save the relationships that matter the most to us even if the extents we go to are actually damaging. Um, there are some content warnings. If you Once you get into the book, there is um, domestic violence and, well, let's see. The most notable thing is for domestic violence. There's also rape. Um, so be careful if you are sensitive to those things uh, as you go into the book. Um, but it's just gorgeously written. I can't wait to see what she will do next. Again, it's Stay With Me, a novel by Ayobami bio
1: it's like this year's home going. It's like that kind yeah. of like mm-hmm. debut that's leaving
0: its mark, like home going did last year. Was it's that just really last year? It's, yeah, it was, man. It's really, really memorable. So
1: I would like to just talk about the hearts of visible furies again, but <laughs> there are some other great books out today, um, and we have sponsors. Would you like to hear about our first sponsor? Yes, please. Okay. Our first sponsor is If the Creek Don't Rise by Leah Weiss. and um, Let me tell you a little bit about it. Sadie Blue has been a wife for 15 days. That's long enough to know she should have never hitched herself to Roy Tupkin, even with the baby. Sadie is desperate to make her own mark on the world, but in remote Appalachia, a ticket out of town is hard to come by, and hope often gets stomped out. When a stranger sweeps into Baines Creek and knocks things off kilter, Sadie finds herself with an unexpected lifeline if she can just figure out how to use it. As I was reading these notes, I thought it said unexpected feline, and I was like, oh, she got a surprise cat. Oh, that <laughs> is a great thing that happens. But no, unexpected lifeline. Uh, Leia Weiss is a debut author who has been called a talent to watch, and her writing has been called Masterful and impressive. Kathleen Grissom, the author of the New York Times bestsellers The Kitchen House and Glory Over Everything, has served as an advisor and been a great mentor to Leah. And If the Creek Don't Rise is a story told by a colorful cast of characters with unique voices. We will have a link to this book in the show notes. You can buy it now wherever books are sold. And we thank them for sponsoring.
0: Okay, lady, what is up next on your list this week?
1: The new Gabriel Zevin! Yeah. Um, You've probably heard of her. She's written several young adult novels and, most recently, The storied Life of A.J. Fickery. And her new book is just as delightful. It is called Young Jane Young. And again, her name is Gabriel Zevin. It's about a young woman named Aviva Grossman. She lives in Miami with her parents. Um, She's a very smart, driven woman. She goes off to college and decides that she wants to get involved in politics. Now, Aviva's old neighbors are a Florida congressman, and so her mother makes some calls and gets her a job as an intern at the congressman's office. Well, things happen. She ends up in a relationship with the congressman. Um, her mother finds out about it. She's very stressed out, but you know, Aviva says she has it all under control. But things happen... And eventually, their relationship is exposed. Um, and it's it, she. not only is it exposed, but it turns out that she was keeping a secret blog because she was so in love with him and she couldn't tell anybody. So she was keeping a blog about their relationship. Not under her name, but they once the news broke, people figured out who she was. So this blog was shared all over the internet. Aviva is shamed. Um, her parents are embarrassed. She becomes the butt of a lot of jokes. And, you know, as... What usually happens? The Congressman, you know, gets a little blowback. Nothing happens. Um, you know, he's like, "Oh, you know, that's an old relationship. You know it's all over, and his wife stands by him. And so Aviva is is um, an outcast now. and so she changes her name to Jane Young and moves to Maine. She's kind of just like, "I've embarrassed the family. I'm just gonna disappear. So she moves to Maine and it moves along. Now she's living in Maine. She has a daughter named Ruby. She's a single mom. She's working as an event planner. Nobody in the town knows who she is, um, and she's very successful at what she does, and she's living this great life, but she decides, um, with help from a friend who thinks that it would be great for her, she decides to run for mayor. Um, Her daughter is 13 and knows how to Google, and because of some hints that she received from some other people, she finds out who her mother is. She's devastated. She feels like her whole life has been a lie. Like, her name isn't even her name. She doesn't know who her dad is. Um, she's so angry at Jane. And it sort of is about the relationships between mother and daughter. Um, it's about double standards. Like, how you know Aviva's life was ruined when nothing happened to the congressman. It's about how people make bad choices. She knows that she, she got involved with a married man. She made a bad, a bad choice. Um, but now how, like, in this day and age, especially with the internet... You can't erase your mistakes as much as you want to. Um, it's also about slut shaming, and you know Aviva's. Um, she won't. She refuses to to feel bad about what she did, or like let people put her down, or be embarrassed about you know her past, um, and how people can't believe you know that she's not ashamed. Um, it's told in five parts. I particularly enjoyed how it's written. It's told in five parts by five different women, two of those women being Aviva, because the other one is her alter ego as jane um one of the sections is told in emails one is like a fake choose your own adventure book one's in the first person one's in the third person and i really enjoyed how she took that it like added to the story um it's it's very delightful it's it's you know a very contemporary novel about real things that happen to real people these days especially you know with the internet um again it's called young jane young and it's by gabriel zevin
0: Ooh, I've had my eye on that one too. I didn't want to take two of your picks this week, though. that would have just been mean. Uh, Okay, so my next pick this week is The Futilitarians, Our Year of Thinking, Drinking, Grieving, and Reading by Anne Gisselson. And uh, this is the book I mentioned at the top of the show that has some content warnings for suicide, and I'm going to be talking about that in this segment. So jump forward now if you need to. Uh, So the setup of this, it's a memoir, not a novel. Uh, I'm all tongue-tied already. The setup is, I think pretty perfect. Um, Anne Giselson is a writer. She lives in New Orleans. And after losing uh, her younger sisters, who were twins, within a year and a half of each other, both to suicide um, in identical fashions, they both hung themselves. They had the exact same mix of drugs in their system. Um, And after she's had to flee her home in New Orleans during Hurricane Katrina and watch her father die from leukemia, She and her husband have had like they've had a rough several years um, and now she's a mother in her early 30s and she and her husband and their group of friends all in New Orleans are wrestling with. Like how do we how do we keep living basically how do you keep moving forward how do you make sense of all the pain that is just part of life and keep going sort of what does it all mean and how do you make the meaning out of it so she and her husband and a group of their friends they they actually like form a a list of the friends that they think would be good to do this project with. And then they narrow it down and then they invite about a dozen. They form what they dub the existential crisis reading group, uh, or jokingly the futilitarians. And once a month they get together to discuss a reading that someone in the group has selected about existentialism. And it can be anything. They talk about Epicurus. They talk about Ecclesiastes. They talk about Tolstoy and Clarice Lispector and Martin Amos and all sorts of writers And Anne Giselson herself is very well and widely read, and so the book includes references to a ton of other literary works and philosophical works. Uh, But the idea was they would start in January. It's January of 2012. They would read a work, and then at the end of that month's discussion, which is this like hours-long, booze-filled session that moves between talking about the work and talking about their lives and, you know, laughing and crying and sort of that whole gamut of human experience and thought around these big issues, somebody else would pick the readings for the next month to sort of build off of it so that they'd have this year-long project that builds itself as it goes. And the book is broken into chapters one for each month of the year where she talks about what the reading was and what she got out of it and the things that they discussed at the existential crisis reading group meeting for the month. But also woven through all of that is the story of her life and her family's life. She was one of eight children. Her father um, sort of built his uh, law practice up from nothing. He was this known figure in New Orleans. Their family had this sort of rich uh, rich, like very recent family history and these tight bonds, but also lots of secrets. And it's complicated. Eight children plus the parents. it's That's a very complex dynamic. And so she talks about her relationship with her father what a mystery he was to their mother and really to all of the kids even though they spent a lot of time with him and that kind of goes to like what a mystery any of us ultimately are to each other she writes this is the first time that she's ever written about her sister's suicides because when her father was still alive he forbid her from doing it so she writes very openly and descriptively about Uh, Their lives, what led up to their suicides, the moment of those suicides, and then what the family did coping with them in the aftermath, how that changed her and how it changed the way that she was in her family of origin, but also her family with her husband and her kids down the line. It's... For being such a heavy... Topic. The book moves very quickly. It's really thoughtful. It's really funny. It is packed with great references. If you wanted to do your own year of reading existentially, you could certainly program it from the books mentioned here. And she says straight off, like, that one of the complaints they all had as they went along was that, like, the list was dominated by old white guys and their thoughts about life. Um, but it would definitely be a good. Jumping off point, she talks about grief and sorrow, but also the resilience that is so essential to anybody, but that's such a key part of being from... New Orleans. And so this is the kind of book I think like a group of friends could have done this anywhere, but this particular book could only come out of someone living in New Orleans in that culture of being just beaten down and rebuilding and sticking together. Uh, and it's fascinating thinking about doing this exercise with your closest friends and how those relationships would shift as well. It's really open and honest and goes to just some of the tough things about life and i really really appreciated it again it's called the futilitarians our year of thinking drinking grieving and reading by Anne gisselson
1: that's coming up for me really soon
0: it's so good you will have all the feelings
1: <gasps> i hate
0: feelings feelings warning
1: i emptied my feeling tank with the hearts of miserable furies
0: no more feelings so- Okay, so now you have to fill the feeling tank back up, but what does one read to fill up, like, something really cozy?
1: Yeah, probably. I've been reading a lot of serial killer books. Those make me happy. (laughs) Those give me the warm fuzzies. This next book gave me the warm fuzzies. It's The Dire King by William Ritter. It is the fourth and, sadly, final book in the Jacoby series. I know I've mentioned the Jacoby series before, I love it so much. I'm not going to tell you really what happens in this one, especially because if you haven't read the other books, which you should, uh, I don't want to ruin it for you, but I will tell you a little bit about Jacoby. The first book is just called Jacoby. It takes place in New England in 1892. Jacoby is a sort of supernatural Sherlock. He has some special senses and he's a little unusual. Um, Abigail Rook is a woman looking for a change of life. She's leaving her family behind and she wants to do something different. And she signs on to be his assistant. And continues to be his assistant even after she learns that his last assistant was turned into a duck. Who now lives on the pond on the third or fourth floor of their house. Because they live in sort of a magical house. Which you can have a pond um, on the third or fourth floor. I can't remember which floor it is. But... Uh, and the house is also occupied by the Jenny, the ghost of the former tenant. Um, and so the books go along with this sort of motley crew of of detectives. Um, there's all kinds of supernatural happenings. There's crazy creatures that appear... Not just your usual run-of-the-mill vampires and werewolves, although those appear too. There's romance. You get to hear uh, Jenny's backstory eventually, like what happened to her. It all kind of ties together into this great epic conclusion with battles and a great big bad. And I was so sad when it was over... Um, But I loved how it ended. Like, sometimes you read things and you're like, that was an unsatisfying conclusion. But I do love how the series ended. And also, a stupid fake character on Twitter, like, made me tear up because I tweeted at the author that I had finished the series and I was so sad and happy and sad. And he has an account for Jacoby. Like, obviously he's not real, but he tweeted me back a, a... gif of um David Tennant saying I don't want to go and I was like oh stupid stupid <laughs> fake character making me sad <laughs> um but they're just so much fun if you like you know Sherlock Holmes or sort of Buffy the Vampire Slayer even a little Doctor Who um they're just great fun again the series is called Jacoby the last book is the Dire King and it is here now
0: that's the most like 2017 as a book lover story <laughs> like, <laughs> you tweet the author and you get a reply back from the character with a gif of David Tennant of all people that's great
1: yeah that's really the that's who I would want to get all my gifts of really so um,
0: for my next segment this week I'm doing a backlist bump because um, the utilitarians got me thinking about how the world is full of reading memoirs but it's not really as full as I wish it were, of like making sense of life through books, memoirs. Uh, I guess Nina Sinkovich kind of does it in Tolstoy and the Purple Chair, but I really loved H is for Hawk by Helen MacDonald, which is about a lot of things. And I don't think that I've even successfully talked about it as being a book that talks about dealing with especially grief and loss through books because the setup for the book is that after her father dies, as she is grieving, Helen McDonald decides one of the things she's going to do is channel her grief into training goshawks, which are notoriously difficult and require you to like sit very quietly and win them over and then be, you know, very like stand your ground with these animals that are very willful and just intimidating and there are beautiful chapters, especially early on, like I have talked about it before and I don't think I'll ever forget reading the chapter where she has just brought her hawk home and the thing that like the next step in getting the hawk to trust her is to sit in a room with the lights off and not look at the hawk and not do anything else, but just like sit there and breathe and be calm, and hope that the hawk will make its way over to her. It is just captivating. But the rest of the book is equally captivating. And the farther that she gets into, further, man, further, farther, the further that she gets into talking about the project of training these hawks, the more she talks about reading books about training hawks, but also books in general that helped her get through those early days after her father's death. And H is for Hawk, like it's not a memoir about reading. It's not as straightforward about processing life and the world through books as the futilitarians is, but it felt the closest to me in sort of going to what the really tender emotions are of a moment like that in life and the ways that reading about our experiences and then talking about them with other readers can help us connect and can help us heal in a way that is much more difficult to do if you don't have that intermediary factor of the book to talk about, like just to sit down with another person or to sit down with your friends and just like have an hour where everybody talks really earnestly about their grief is such a scary proposition, but having a book to stand in there makes such a difference. And Helen McDonald talks about the books that made a difference for her in those years too. So um, if that sounds good to you. If you've been meaning to read H is for Hawk for a couple of years since it was a really big deal and you haven't gotten there yet, here's your reminder. It's H is for Hawk by Helen MacDonald. And now I get to do our next sponsor this week, which is a book that I have read and intended to talk about on this episode, so that works out really nicely for me. It's The Duchess Deal by Tessa Dare. Uh, Since his return from war, the Duke of Ashbury has continued to seek justice, menacing London 'er ne'er-do-wells by night. But now he needs an heir, there's a theme on this week's show, and a wife to produce one. Uh, When seamstress Emma Gladstone appears in his library wearing a wedding gown, he decides immediately that she'll do. His terms are simple. They'll be husband and wife by night only. And once she's pregnant, they will never share a bed again. But Emma is no pushover. And once she has seen the man beneath the scars, he can't stop her from falling in love. This is the first in a new series from Tessa Dare. She has won multiple Rita Awards. And here's the pitch that the author sent for it, which I can't top. Think Regency-era Deadpool meets Beauty and the Beast as a scarred mercenary bedevils London lowlifes by night but reclaims his humanity with the help of a woman. Uh, Emma Gladstone is the daughter of a vicar, and Tessa Dare grew up as a preacher's kid. Uh, so you get some interesting sort of author experience, informed writing there and the heroine of this book as all of our favorite romances are is no wilting flower. She's an entrepreneur, she's a hard-working seamstress, and she is not intimidated by this duke and all of his demands. This was my first time reading Tessa Dare. I'm not sure why it took me so long to get to her in my regency romance reading, but I really enjoyed the book and I'm going to be reading more of her backlist. If you want to get started with her now, this is the first in a new series, so there's no better place to do it. Again, it's The Duchess by tessa dare well the link to it in the show notes nice Mm -hmm.
1: so uh i have a little twofer for my last um my last segment one is a new book and one is an older book they're both um crime novels that i came into i'd never read either author before and i love them both so i wanted to tell you about them the first one is the good daughter by karen slaughter which is hilarious, I think, because it rhymes. But wouldn't it be funny if her last name was Slatter? Um Anyway, but uh, it came out two weeks ago, I think now. Three weeks ago. it. If i was just going to start off by saying, these are books about serial killers and murder and death and horrible crime. So if you are sensitive to those kind of things, these are not the books that you want to read. Uh, the Good Daughter is the most intense, like, graphic... Um, just thriller that I've ever read. It's there's horrific crime, but also like there, it's about a lawyer and his daughters. And the um, legal side of things was just fascinating. I was like, she has to have been a lawyer in, in before because she, I, it's just amazing the things that she knows. But um, she gets all of her lawyer tips from another um, famous author whose name has just left my head, um, who was also a lawyer. But uh, it's, it's so fantastic. I'd never read Karen Slaughter before. I immediately went out and bought six more of her books um, because I was just like, this is one of the greatest you know, mystery thriller writers I've ever read. I need to read a lot more of her. So I was very excited about that. Um so I highly recommend The Good Daughter if if you like that kind of thing. And the other one I read is more on the kind of silly slasher side. It's Heart Sick by Chelsea Kane. Um I accidentally picked up the sixth book in the series several months ago. And I started reading it, and I was like, I have no idea what's going on. And then I looked, and I was like, oh, that's because it's the sixth one. Um, and if you've heard me talk about it before, you know that reading books out of order makes my eyes bleed. So I bought this... I was going to buy the sixth one, or the first one, excuse me. And then I realized I actually had bought it in 2009, and it was sitting upstairs in my house. Um, so I read it, and it's really fun. It's about a detective named Archie Sheridan and his relationship with Gretchen Lowell, who is a serial killer. She's like... Um, if Hannibal Lecter was a supermodel, which is where, like, the silly comes in, you know, she's, like, the most beautiful woman, and all she wants to do is murder people. Um, and he has caught her, and now she's in jail, and now he's working on a new case, but he can't, like, break his bonds with her because she kidnapped him one time and tortured him and for days and days, and they have this special bond now. Um, it's, it's exactly what I wanted to read this weekend. I just wanted, like, some escapism. You know, because, yeah, because, you know, murder, fun. Um, <laughs> but I, I thought it was great. And there's like five more books in the series. And, you know, both of these just just fantastic. So I'm so glad that I, I came into these, um, finally, these authors. Again, the first one was called The Good Daughter by Karen Slaughter. And the second is Heart Sick by Chelsea Kane.
0: All right. My last pick this week is a new anthology. If you like the best American short stories each year, this is something to keep an eye on. It's PEN America's best debut short stories for 2017. And this is the first year that they've done this, but it's going to be an annual anthology. This collects the work of a dozen writers who made their debuts either in print or online this year in a literary magazine. So you are not likely, unless you're reading a bunch of literary magazines, to know any of these names. They were judged by um, writers that we love, Marie-Helene Bertino, who wrote 2AM at the Cat's Pajamas, and Kelly Link, who wrote like a million things that we've loved, and Nina McConaughey. And they are a really diverse selection of a dozen stories that made it into this collection. They moved from South Carolina to South Korea. Some are on really old-fashioned, like 1700s, farms and some are in cubicle farms and they have just, you know, sort of, undying human themes, love, identity, technology, language, all that good stuff. I am working my way through these right now. Like any collection, and I know I say this all the time, you're going to find some that you love and some that maybe aren't your flavor, but this is a really cool opportunity in this collection to really see a writer at the very beginning of their career. It's a celebration of their first published short story, and maybe you will find a favorite here that you'll be able to track up you know, as an up-and-coming writer over the next couple of years. So that's the PEN America Best Day short stories of 2017 it's edited by yuka igarashi and again the judges were marie helene bertino and kelly link and nina mcconagly we will have a link to it in the show notes and that brings me to the end of this week's new books what are you going to go read now
1: i am you're gonna you might be jealous or you might already have it in my hot little hands it came in the mail about 10 minutes before we started recording i mm-hmm. have i am i am i am Seventeen Brushes with Death by Maggie O'Farrell.
0: Maggie O'Farrell! <gasps> right? It I is, love her. On the back
1: it says, It is a memoir composed entirely of Maggie O'Farrell's near-death experiences. What? She writes about a serial killer she escaped from on a remote country path, a catastrophic childbirth, the months she spent in the hospital as a young girl after contracting encephalitis, the teenage adventure that left her at the mercy of a knife-wielding stranger, and a moment of madness that had her fighting for her life at sea. just Is that real? It, yeah, this is a memoir. Like, I mean, I, I'm assuming she's telling the truth, Whoa. so I don't know. Um, but it's, it's just, it sounds amazing. We already love her. Love, love, love. It says she wrote it to help her daughter who lives with a life-threatening immunological disorder.
0: Hmm. So, oh, it's going to be amazing. I'm excited to read a memoir from her. Yes. She is so good. So good. Well, my next read is also pretty enviable. It's The Burning Girl by Claire Messud. And, man, I love her. The woman upstairs was amazing. And I have intentionally stayed away from knowing anything about this book other than this one's coming of age and I think deals with young girl or, like, young woman friendship. In some way. Um, so I cannot wait. It's been kind of quiet around this, but there was a great profile of her a few weeks ago called Who's Afraid of Claire Messud that I recommend reading if you have enjoyed her work. So The Burning Girl. I'm going to be talking about it next week. I'm really excited.
1: No, I have to say I've read The Emperor's New Children, but I didn't read The Woman Upstairs. And my friend was here the other day and we were talking about The Burning Girl and she mentioned The Woman I said, I haven't read it. And she's like, <gasps> it was so good that as soon as i finished it i read it again and i was like okay okay so i went upstairs to the magic room i have up there where apparently i have every (laughs) single book that i've ever thought that i needed to read and i had a copy so that's that's like probably after the maggie O'Farrell. it's not very big it's only like 200 something pages so
0: oh the woman upstairs just reads like a house on fire it's so good nice all right that's Our show, oh, well, no, yeah, that is our show, because that's what we're going to read next. Uh, So thank you (laughs) to our sponsors, uh, Talenti, Gelato, and Sorbetto. We'll have a link to them in the show notes, To If the Creek Don't Rise and The Duchess Deal, links to both of those in the show notes as well. If you would like to drop us a line, you can do that at all the books at bookriot.com or hit us up on Twitter. I'm Rebecca Shinsky S-C-H-I-N-S-K-Y Liberty is Miss Liberty. If you've got a minute to rate or review the show, please do that on Apple Podcasts. It helps us to reach a wider audience, which is always a good thing. And I forgot to mention this earlier. I want to do a quick shout out because when we did our Fall Books preview a couple weeks ago, Liberty talked about Ta-Nehisi Coates' new book, We Were Eight Years in Power. And our friends, Josh and Emily, at Print Bookstore in Portland, Maine, have decided that in response to what happened in Charlottesville a couple of weeks ago, they're going to donate five dollars for every copy that they sell of that new Ta-Nehisi Coates book to a Charlottesville-based organization that trains—I believe it's—they um, train educators, African American educators in the Charlottesville area. So we'll drop a link to that in the show notes. If you were going to buy that new Ta-Nehisi Coates anyway, you might as well buy it from Print and have five dollars of your purchase go to the Charlottesville community where great work by black writers and all of the conversation about race really needs to be happening. So shout out to Emily and Josh for a cool literary activism response to what happened in Charlottesville. And if you want to jump on board, there's a way for you to do that too. All right, Lib, take us home. Yes. As much as we
1: would love to tell you about more books today, we just don't have the time, but you can read about more titles out now in the show notes at bookriot.com/allthebooks, unless. You're in an eclipse. Is your house dark yet? Is it dark there?
0: I forgot no, to ask. It's you. not I can still see lots of blue sky. Uh-huh. So we have like forty five minutes left until I think Richmond will get to eighty six percent totality.
1: Oh, all oh, right. It sounds like a science I fiction know. movie. I, don't know. I love
0: Path of Totality. I think it should be a metal band. Yeah, it probably is
1: it's really hard to name bands these days because everybody's taken all the names so it's probably one already (laughs) and yeah so yeah show notes Um, you'll also find a link to our weekly new books newsletter and that's it so in the meantime happy reading oh I have to say it too happy reading